Good to see you all this morning. How lovely to be together. Uh, as Nathaniel said, my name's Richard. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, this, as he also said, is the final sermon in our series in the book of John. If you've been around, whoa, yeah, disappointment. Maybe we'll do it all again. How's that sound? Um, We've been preaching through the book of John now since uh, the middle of May, slowly working our way chapter by chapter through the entire book. 21 sermons taking us from the opening verses of the Gospel of John. I cannot hook this thing on me. So here we go. No, hang on. Right, there we go. Right. Good morning. Good to see you all. Um, So as I was saying, we've been uh, preaching through the book of John chapter by chapter, 21 sermons. And um, what we get here is this gospel written by John, who is a friend of Jesus. And John is writing this. If you kind of, if you had a a cinematic way of thinking, he's kind of imagine him huddled over a candle. He's an old man now, and he's recounting this time that he spent with Jesus. And uh, he's working through systematically all the things they went through. He starts obviously right at the start. He explodes Jesus onto the scene as the Son of God. You may remember this from May, the opening verses of the book describing this Jesus that John writes to tell the world about. Hear the words again. In the beginning was the Word, as Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Good news this morning, Gateway. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's how we start. And then in verse 14, the crucial reality of this for us all, the word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. One of the most profound things ever written. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Isn't that amazing? These verses spell out the reality that, that Jesus, the, the Son of God, the perfect representation of the Father, the one who from all time has been with the Father, creating the universe, upholding the universe, the bringer of life, the author of you and I, the one who sits behind all things, every empire, every event, every circumstance, the reason for all things, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, has come to us. God's Son has taken on flesh. He's been born to us, and he's come to live amongst us, to walk alongside us now. Emmanuel, our God with us. That's what we'll be celebrating over these next few weeks as we celebrate Christmas together, that that Christ has come to us. That's the message of the Gospel of John, that we might find life in Jesus who has come to us. And as we've worked through the book, we've seen what that's looked like in a variety of different ways. He turns water into wine, revealing himself as the Lord of all the physical elements. And he he clears out the traders of the temple, declaring that a time has now come to restore the purity and the importance of worship. And he proclaims that he is now the true temple, the, the place where man and God can meet as they come to new life in him. And then he draws the, the Samaritan woman, the outcast woman. You might remember the story near the woman at the well, and he forgives her sins, and he offers her new life as a child of God. And he declares himself the final word in that moment over all matters of faith and ethics and morality. It's all to be found in him now. And then he heals lepers 
people who've been lame for four decades, declaring himself Lord over all matters of physical health and life and death. And then he stands up at these big Jewish festivals and he says, says things like, if you are thirsty, come to me and you will drink and you will be satisfied forever. Declares himself the only one who can satisfy the deepest need of the human soul. And then he calls himself the good shepherd, doesn't he? He promises that he will love and care and watch over us and continually provide our daily needs. And he says that he alone is the way to God and that only he is the truth in a confused world. And in him you will find life and life in all its fullness. And he says that he's the resurrection, that as you come to him and you declare faith in him, as you live for him, that you can have eternal life with, with him and in him and with the Father. And we're only a few chapters into this work of literature. And then as we've heard these past few weeks, he demonstrates all of this. He kind of says, let me prove it to you by going to the cross where he is broken and he's crucified for us. And at the moment of his death, declaring that all that he has come to do is now finished. The curtain in the temple that separated the presence of God from people like you and I in that moment is, is torn from top to bottom, symbolically announcing that through his death, the way to the Father is now open for you and I. No more need to go through a priest, no more need to ritually sacrifice anything. The temple curtain is open. The way has been made open for you and I to come to God. And then three days later, as he shrugs off death and he raises himself up, he proves what he has previously declared, that he is the Lord of all matters of life and death, that death can no longer have any hold on him. He shrugs it off. He claims mastery over it. And therefore, he gets to decide, and only he, that death no longer has any hold over you and I. That for those of us who believe in him and cling to him and live for him, that we too one day will be raised up to eternal life in him. That's the hope of the Christian faith. That's what the Gospel of John outlines. And today as we conclude the series, we land on the verse that we've used to shape the series and the one that we've been using to prepare and pray and we've been preaching each week. It explains why John wrote all these things down and why it's important that we read them and understand them. John 20, verse 31. We've heard this a few times now. Why don't we, why don't we read this verse aloud together? You ready? Let's have it up on the screen. But these things written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John has written this entire book recording the signs and the activities and the life of Jesus so that you may believe. In fact, grammatically, the Greek translation of this verse is so that you may believe and go on believing that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus has complete mastery over every situation and circumstance, that Jesus is Lord over life and your death and your relationships and your daily provision and your health, and that he alone is the satisfaction of your soul, and that he alone can save you from the consequences of your sin, and that he alone can give you all that, you, all that he intended for you in this life and in the next. 
That's why John wrote the book. That's why he included all these stories that demonstrate these truths. That's why he stacked it up the way that he did. And that's why it's important for us to hear these stories week after week. That's just one of the reasons why it's so important for us to gather here Sunday by Sunday and in life groups and so on. We hear the Word of God and we're strengthened by it because the reality of the way that life goes is that even as we go on pouring the Word of God into us, throughout the course of the week, we need ongoing refilling. We kind of leak. I remember having a pastor who said we get filled with the Spirit, but we leak. We're a leaking people. And so we need this constant infilling of the Spirit. So we call out, Jesus, fill us again with your, with your word and your power. And Father, fill us with the Holy Spirit. Because the world is so full of voices and opinions. And that in every day, in every way, day by day, we are, we are shaped by the things that we hear and that we see and that we do. And our hearts get battered and bent and misshapen by sin and by all sorts of influences around us. And when you boil it down, we get every seven days, 35 minutes, just 35 minutes, there's 10,000 minutes in a week, we get 35 to hear God speaking to us through his word here, comforting us, healing us, sometimes wounding us where he needs to get underneath something, but always healing us, shaping us, forming us, bending our hearts back into shape as we gather and remember the simple truths of the gospel preached out, preached into our hearts, making us whole and keeping us in the love of God. I don't know what your own experience of this has been, but I've found that the further I distance myself from God, the longer I go without being in his presence or hearing or reading his word or being here amongst his people, the more cynical and dry and anxious I become and the more I start to believe the voices in the world. And therefore, we need repeatedly to come under again and again the corrective, healing, reorienting word of God and remember who Jesus is again and remember what he's like and remember what he's achieved and remember what he's doing in our lives and find hope and freedom in that. Time and time again as a response to the buffeting and the bruising of life as we come again to Jesus and we rehearse and apply his gospel, we learn to believe again and we go on believing. One of my um, one of my favorite authors talks about this in the context of, of Beethoven. He says, Beethoven's ninth is set. It's never going to change. But depending on where you are in life and through seasons, it sounds different. And it might apply something to you slightly differently. That's like the gospel. It's set. It's never changing. But depending on who you are and where you are and when you are, it will have meaning for your life. That's, that's why John writes, and that's why we preach. Nathaniel and I often talk about this. We find that our experience has been that... Um, Whatever we're preaching that Sunday, we've normally had to work through that very issue in our lives that week and in our own faith journey that week. We all need the gospel. We all need the reminder of what the gospel teaches. We all need to rehearse and repeat and apply over and over again the simple truths of the gospel. We all need our hearts renewed and refreshed week by week. Some of you... Um, You've been around, been part of the church for a while. Remember just over a year ago when uh, we were victims of a huge fraud that cleared out our bank accounts. That was an unhappy time. Mercifully, we got all the money back if you don't know the end of the story. I don't know if any of you recall what we were preaching that week that it happened. On the Sunday we stood up here, I actually preached, and we preached on spiritual warfare. And uh, that week the fraud happened. 
Three days later, on the, Sunday, the following Sunday, the pre-planned title for the sermon, it's been pre-planned for months, prepare for trouble in this world. Yeah, <laughs> you can laugh, didn't feel funny at the time. <laughs> Mercifully, the week we got the money back, three months later, almost a year ago to today actually, another pre-planned sermon, prepare to rejoice. I was feeling pretty rough in that season. We'd lost a, a lot of money and we were midway through an expensive building project. I wasn't p- feeling particularly peaceful in that season. These preaching bookends and remembering ongoingly the word of God in that season really helped sustain me. What I needed, what all of us need in the day of trouble is for John to lean over to us and remind us, Golda, Janet, Paul, Whoever you are, remember all that Scripture says about Jesus. That's why it's written, and that's why I've written it down, and you need to read it out and believe it so that you may go on believing in this moment, in this situation, you may have life in his name. That's why we work so hard to make sure that uh, preaching is given priority here and the Word of God is, is, uh, is, is given paramount priority. We work hard to be accurate about that. We labor hard to to make sure that we're working on this and we pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us week by week rather than just relying on worldly wisdom because worldly wisdom is really just not wisdom at all. It's It's usually faithless and loveless and it leaves dents in the heart that needs repairing by the gospel. The gospel speaks, speaks to you in your situation right now, today and every day. That's why we need it, and we need to hear it, we need to read it, we need to hear it, we need to read it, we need to hear it, we need to read it. John is saying that he, he wrote this book, almost like one of those old-school Uncle Sam posters. I think there's one coming up on the screen. Remember these? It leans into your life. In fact, Jesus leans into your life through his word, and he says, I want you. I want you. Come to me. Hear what I've got to say for you. That's why we stick to the same simple truth week in, week out, and we have done for over 2,000 years now. Jesus Christ, crucified and raised from the dead, is all that you need for life and salvation. And it's what you need to know in every single situation you find yourself in, that Jesus is enough. Look at all the stuff he's done. Miracles and healing and provision and invitation, death and resurrection. Listen to and read and rehearse the simple gospel over and over again. All the things that I've just been rehearsing for you, that Jesus is Lord over all. And as we read and we hear these stories time and time again, they shape us and they form us. It's like, um, I don't know whether you've ever seen this, a stone that's sat under a dripping tap for decades. It's been worn smooth. Each seemingly powerless tiny drop of water that's fallen on it seems to make no real difference in the moment. But over the course of time, it's totally changed and totally shaped by... Uh, that drip, drip by drip, day by day, sermon by sermon, Bible reading by Bible reading. Do what Nathaniel said. Get the bread booklet. Read the Bible day by day. It's like water dripping on you. It'll form you. It'll shape you. It'll smooth you. It'll bring life to you. You may not even know it in the moment, but when you look back over the course of your life, you'll see its shaping effect on you. That's why probably the most shaping verse for me in the entire Bible for the importance and the regularity of being here Sunday by Sunday and doing all that I've just encouraged you to do and of preaching and of myself here, uh, both preaching and sitting under preaching, is this from Paul in Philippians 3.1. He says to the church out there, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it's a safeguard for you. He's taking his pastoral responsibility seriously, saying the same stuff over and over again. Jesus died for you. 
Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. You can have new life in him. And so John writes this book, and he says, I've done it, so that when you read it, when you hear it, and when you need to reread it and rehear it and daily consider the, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in all sorts of situations that you'll face, that in that moment and in that time, you might believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, the Savior, and that he can save you from any situation that you find yourself in, and that you might go on day by day believing this to be true and find life, even in the most deathly situations. And then we get into um, John 21. This is the final chapter of the whole book. This is such a fun chapter. So before we read this, the background here is that Jesus has been resurrected, and he's already appeared to the disciples, to Mary, to Doubting Thomas, and to a variety of people. And then we get to this as John's final record of Jesus' time with mankind before his ascension back into heaven. And I particularly enjoy this because I think if I was John writing this, I would have been looking for all the kind of the most glorious lightning strike thrown from heaven moments to say, and this is what the gospel's all about. But he doesn't. He records Jesus at a beach barbecue with his friends. Let's, uh, let's read this together. This is verse 1 to 14. It says, Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. <clears throat> it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, so normal. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, then throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him because he'd taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 meters. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and he dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, he took the bread and he gave it to them and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. In this passage... Although it's not explicit, I believe that the implicit, implicit message for us here is what is plainly on God's heart throughout Scripture. It's mission. It's reaching the world and telling people about him and bringing them into relationship with him everywhere we go and in every season of life. The phrase I often think of is that he draws us in to send us out. His heart for us is to partner with him in reaching the world for his purposes and doing exactly as he did, demonstrating with our lives that Jesus is Lord, shining a light into dark places, praying for the sick to be healed and for the oppressed to be set free and calling all people from all backgrounds without exception into new life with him. That's what God's mission is. He himself is a missional God. That's what John 1 is all about. He came to us. 
He took on flesh, this ancient one, the Son of God. He came down from the glory and the comfort of heaven. He incarnated himself to come and be with us, to offer us new life, to, and to do what was necessary to make all of that possible. Mission is what is on God's heart. Going throughout the earth towards the ones he loves. That's the summary of the whole mission of God, that God himself has gone out. He's not stayed up, huddled up in heaven. He's come out, and he's reached across human history to be with us and to save us. That's what he did right in the start in Genesis 1. He came to Adam and Eve in the garden to be with them, to love them, ultimately to save them from themselves as well, and he's been doing that ever since. And now he invites us to do the same. Go out into the world. Cast your net wide. Cast, cast the gospel net wide and fish for men and women. Fill your nets until they're bursting at the seams like they were for these disciples. That was actually his original invitation to the disciples three years earlier. Men who were actually fishermen as he walked alongside them amongst the fishing boats at the Sea of Galilee and he said, Andrew, Peter, come, follow me. From now on, I'll make you fishers of men. It was always his plan for them. And so we see some beautiful things in the story. First thing is Peter, who just a few days previously, if you remember, had denied Christ and fled for his life. Now he sees Christ on the beach, and there is no sense of shame or hiding. He wraps his clothes around him, and he dives into the water, and he swims to Jesus, and Jesus receives him. That's really important for us to hear if you are someone who feels you have denied or shamed Christ. There is now no condemnation for you. Dive in again. Be like Peter. And later on that day, Jesus will restore him and he'll recommission him to active pastoral duty. That's a beautiful gospel picture. Your shame has been removed from you, whatever you've done. And you can come today again to Jesus. That's just as true for you now as ever before. Yeah. And then we see this... Um, this beach barbecue. Jesus has started a, a barbecue and he's, he's cooking fish. But from the shore, he's shouting out and giving instructions to the fish, uh, fishing instructions to the disciples on the boat who've caught nothing overnight. And they must have been despairing. What were they going to do that day? Where were they going to get the money from? And I believe the story gives us an invitation and a model of how to partner with him in all that he calls us into. Just think about the model of the interaction between Jesus and this men. He starts by asking them, how are they doing? How are you doing? Have you caught any fish? And they say, no, we've caught nothing. We've got nothing. So Jesus responds with, I've got an idea. Throw your net out on the other side. And they do. They're obedient. And as they are obedient to the instruction of the master, look what happens. There is a huge haul of fish. He calls us to fish with him. He called those first gospel disciples, Peter and Andrew, as they were preparing their nets on the beach to go fishing three years earlier, and he said to them what he says to us today, come follow me. Why? Not for an easy life, not for the kicks, not for the glory or the prestige of being called. That's already been bestowed on us much earlier when he marked us out for salvation at the beginning of time. He says to us, come and follow me so that you may become fishers of men. He says, I've got work for you, Gateway. Come to me, be drawn in, follow me, learn from me, be cleaned up and healed by me, and then go out. Go and fish. Go and cast to this gospel net that I've given you and fish for men and women. That's your job. That's our job description. Verse 11. 
So Simon Peter dragged the net back on board, and it was full of large fish, 153. That's a lot of fish. But even with so many, it was not torn, which is, I think, what you'd expect from a haul that big. John makes this point because I imagine that the haul would have expected to tear the net. But the point here is that Jesus has given us a net to catch men and women that can never be torn or broken either. It's the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ, this message that has been uttered and whispered and declared and written about. It all started with a small spark. These men, 2,000 years ago, as Jesus does all these things that John records in his gospel, and then it catches fire, and it rips through the world, and it rips through icy hearts, and it's changed lives and societies and civilizations and empires ever since. Men have tried to suppress it and change it and water it down and compromise it. People have lost their lives over it, been imprisoned for it, beaten for it. Nations have risen and fallen over it. But this gospel net will not break, and it will continue to catch fish. It is the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel, the gospel is the power of God. The power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Think about that interaction between Jesus and the disciples. How are you doing, Gateway? He asks us. Have you caught any fish? I've called you to be fishers of men. I've got an idea, Gateway, he says. Just like with those guys in the boat. Here's the idea. Cast your net, Gateway. Cast out the gospel. It will not break. It will never break. And when you haul it back on board expect fish. There will undoubtedly be some nights when you've set down your nets and you've hauled them up and caught nothing. That's obvious. But he says to us again, I've got an idea. Cast again. Cast out the gospel gateway. To cast something is to throw it. Cast your anxieties upon him, he says. Throw them away from yourself and onto him. Cast the gospel with force and with energy and with expectation. Cast this gospel net again and again. It will never break. It will keep on going age to age, generation to generation. Nations rise and fall. It will be pressed against and rejected and spoken against. It always has been so, but it will never stop. It will never break. And it will always return a harvest, a full catch of fish. And the worldwide church in each generation will continue to be all that Christ has purposed for us through the highs and the lows, through growth and shrinkage, through success and failures. The gospel will go on having its full effect in calling out a people from the world who will comprise his body, the church, until he returns for us again. Scripture promises us this. The gospel reaps a harvest as you apply it in your own lives and it catches fish as you cast it into the world. The gospel is effective, as our friend Rigby Wallace reminds us, on two frontiers, to the ends of the earth and to the depths of our hearts. That's what we've seen week after week in the series as we've worked through the book of John. That's what John is saying to us. Remember, read, digest, reread, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came to us with what seemed like nothing, just an itinerant rabbi walking along a beach by a lake until he called his first disciples and started to proclaim the truths of the gospel in word and deed around Jerusalem and the area around it. And then everything changes. A fire is lit. It's a fire that has spelled death for some who reject it and life and healing for others who receive it. That's what the gospel does. That's what the gospel should do. That is my job this morning, is to force a decision in your life. And it must be told. 
and it must be told in all the earth by us. Come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Cast your net. It won't break and it won't fail you. You can trust it. It's the power of God for the salvation of all who will receive it. Let me um, take you on a journey back into the Old Testament for a moment. I found this really particularly inspiring as I thought about this this week. 600 years earlier, 600 years before Jesus, Ezekiel, the prophet, had written about this. He had prophesied to Israel who, if you remember at the time, were homeless exiles in Babylon. Their temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. He prophesied, even in light of that, that a time was coming in the future when the temple would be rebuilt and restored. And he was talking about a time when the fortunes of Israel, God's people, would be restored. And he was prophetically talking about a time when the Messiah would come. And he was prophetically talking about a time when the inpouring of the Holy Spirit to men and women for the purposes of God's mission would come. Men and women like you and I. And he was also talking about what would happen at the end of the ages when God comes again to dwell with his people forever. This Old Testament prophet, this crusty Old Testament prophet, in an obscure place at an obscure time, was looking down through the lens of history inspired by God and seeing age after age where God would be with his people and his purposes would be fulfilled throughout the ages and would again be fully accomplished on the final day. Listen to how he envisions this. This is from chapter 47 of the book of Ezekiel. I'm just going to pick out a few verses. Ezekiel says that the Lord showed him a vision of the temple restored. He said, and I saw water coming out from under the temple. And the water was trickling from the south side. That side would have had a, a staircase leading, uh, leading up to the first floor in the temple. And water is trickling down out of the temple and down onto the stairs, onto the ground below where people would have stood. And as I saw this, he says, I was led through the water that was ankle deep. And then it says it was up to his waist. And then he says it was so deep that I couldn't even cross it. It's, it's just like this gospel trickle that starts here in AD 1 and has for the past 2,000 years swept through the earth and become a history-altering, nation-shaping, life-bringing torrent that cannot be broken and cannot be crossed and cannot be mastered or cannot be tamed. Let's read on. Ezekiel says, Then he led me back to the bank of the river. This trickle has now become a river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes even the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Where the river flows, Gateway, everything will live. This water, this gospel river that started with a trickle, has now become a, a life-giving torrent that flows and flows from the dwelling of God through the lives of his followers, and wherever it flows, everything will live. Yeah. Friends, we, we are to go. We are to go into the nations. We are to go into our local supermarkets and schools, and in every place where we step, we are to cast the gospel net and do as John does in this book. Tell of Jesus. We're to go to the high places and to the low places in society. We're to go into every part of our society. We're to go with the gospel, and we're to cast our gospel nets, and we're to proclaim Jesus, and we're to tell these stories that John tells, and we're to apply this gospel to the ends of the earth and to the depths of our hearts. And as we do so, we can expect everything to live. Things will live. 
Let's read the rest of Ezekiel 47. Verse 10. Fishermen will stand along the shore. From En Gedi to Eneglem, there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, hallelujah, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they'll bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. That's the gospel. That's why John writes. That's how we believe and go on believing. We hear the life giving message of the gospel, the gospel that starts and comes to us as a trickle into lives and situations and grows and grows and rises as a mighty river that invites you again and again to cast down your net and to draw up food and life for the healing of your heart. And then we go out and we tell the life-giving message of the gospel that invites you to cast down your nets again and to draw in men and women, fish, of all varieties, more than the Mediterranean Sea from the ends of the earth. That's the invitation of the gospel for you today. And that's the commissioning work of the gospel for you today as well. Dive into those waters today. Be like Simon Peter when he saw Jesus on the shore. He, he didn't hesitate. He dived in in his clothes. Dive in today. Dive in today. Whether that be for the first time that you might believe or once again, that you might go on believing, and in believing, that you might have life in his name. Yeah. And let's tell the world. Let's cast down our nets into the water of the world and tell them, just as John tells us of the works and the wonders of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that they too might believe and find life and healing and wholeness in his name. Amen? Amen. Why don't we pray together? Jesus, I, uh, I do so thank you for this book that your friend John wrote that records your life and records the, the very mundane day-to-day and the very extraordinary things that you did. And in that kind of breadth of experience, we see something of the majesty and the wholeness and the glory and the mastery that you have over all things. Be that simply creating a, a beverage out of nothing at a wedding be that shrugging off death and raising yourself up to eternal life again, having mastery over all things. Thank you that it says in your word, in fact, you declare this in the book of Revelation, you are the first and the last. You were dead and now you're alive and you've caught us up in this history-spanning story to partner with you and to be with you and to find life in you as we believe in you and go on believing in you. And I pray for all of us in this room that today there'd be a fresh sense of catching us up in all that you are and all that you're doing and all that you purpose for us and all that you would have for us. Lord, I pray that like Ezekiel, we'd look down the kind of the, the lens of history and be able to see the fruitfulness that you'll bring amongst us here at Gateway, generation after generation, maybe when we're long gone, that the gospel that will never break will keep on going, the trickle that will become a torrent will continue to bring life and healing and freedom amongst us here. And we lift you up. We declare you as Lord and Savior over all. Lord, we love you. Amen.